Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your loving kindness to us. And as we submit ourselves to your word, Lord Jesus, um, it's easy to uh, poke fun at our discomfort um, around ideas of judgment, but this is your word. It's a shield for all who take refuge in it. So Lord, we pray that you give us an appetite for your words that comes by seeing the sufficiency and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the author and poet, uh, Wendell Berry, once wrote a poem on hope. And the poem is entitled, The Place That You Belong To. And in it, he says that we can't endure uh, what's going to come. We can't have hope in the present or hope in the future if we don't understand where we come from. For Berry, he writes this kind of speaking innately about where we stand in place of nature. But he describes the threats and the hope in this way, he says, this knowledge, this knowledge of where you come from, cannot be taken from you by power or by wealth. It, that's the knowledge of where you come from, will stop your ears to the powerful when they ask you for your faith, and to the wealthy when they ask you for your land and your work. By this knowledge, make the sense you need to make. By it, stand in the dignity of good sense, whatever may follow. Speak to your fellow humans as your place has taught you to speak, as it has spoken to you. Speak publicly what cannot be taught or learned in public. For Barry, there are a few things more powerful in the face of trial, more formative in how we treat others, and more profound than what we remind ourselves about concerning where we are from. There, from that point, he says, we must learn to speak as our place has taught us to speak. For the Christian, for those who have faith in Jesus, the place in which we have come from and the place in which we stand is the place of the cross. And Jesus is going to speak to us today from that place himself. And in the passage that was just read for us, we see that Jesus makes it clear that there are two defining aspects of who you are when it comes to your place. And that is knowing from where we have come to Jesus and when we have come to Jesus. From where we've come and when we have come. And it's upon these two questions that make a difference between those who meet Jesus in our text with weeping and gnashing of teeth And those who meet Jesus in this text saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In our study through the book of Luke, Jesus is journeying journeying toward Jerusalem where he is going to encounter the cross. And his teaching along the way is beginning to show the difficulties, but also the joy of following him. But the difficulties and distress of following Jesus is becoming so clear that it leaves the crowd today wondering if the kingdom, the hope, and the benefits of Christianity are themselves endangered. Maybe you've wondered that. As you look at your coworkers or your neighbors, does it appear that those who live for the world, the world's hope, seem to have a sort of ease in life that those who follow Jesus lack? That their road is broad and easy, but that often in following Jesus, it feels like we are the restricted, the few, and the ones who don't necessarily get out of life what others get. And it's this very same paradigm, 
back when Jesus was on earth that leads them to look at the kingdom and to ask if the kingdom itself is endangered. Did you notice that? They asked, will those who are saved be few? Is it a threatened way of life? And then it leads others in our text to wonder if the king himself is endangered. Did you notice that too? As they get close to Jerusalem, a Pharisee speaks up to Jesus and says, Herod wants to kill you. Don't go to Jerusalem. But in the face of hardship, Jesus makes it clear that the greatest hardship you can endure is the hardship of not following Jesus. And our main point today is simple, and it's taken from Jesus' clear command to his disciples. What we'll see today is this, is that we strive for the gospel because of what we're saved from and because of who we're saved to. We strive for the gospel because of what we're saved from and who we are saved to. And we're going to see this in two parts. First, in verses 22 through 30, we're going to see the striving of the saved. And we're going to see five motivations for us to strive after Jesus in that text. Then in verses 31 through 35, we're going to see the suffering of the Savior, where the heart of Jesus is being contrasted with the heart of unbelievers. But to begin, let's focus on the first encounter we have in our text today. Luke tells us that Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem. He had been up in northern Galilee and he's journeying south. And as he's doing it, he's stopping. We saw last week he stopped in a synagogue to teach. This next week he's going to stop in another house of a Pharisee. He's teaching and he's journeying. And there's kind of this crowd that's growing around him. As he's teaching, as he's journeying, there's a couple others that fall in and follow. But at some point, someone in the crowd looks around and they consider, well, if this Jesus is king of the Jews... Is this all the crowd he's going to have? Is there going to be any more people who want to follow the Lord's Messiah? This is a good group, but is this it? And in case you haven't noticed in our world today or throughout church history, there's never been such a thing as a Christian majority. In fact, to base your expectation of following Jesus or your political structure on that is to base that on something that the Lord has not promised in his life. Instead, the Bible paints followers of Jesus most often as a prophetic minority. And in the face of such opposition, it's easy to wonder, as this person did, will those who walk it be few? We often get, when we travel with a crowd, things are easy. There's insulation, there's anonymity, there's resources. And that's a little bit what he's after here. And so he asks this question to Jesus and Jesus turns it on his head. Did you notice that? The question was what? Will those others who are saved be few? But then what did Jesus say? He spoke to the individual. He says, you better be sure you're saved. And this is our first point today. This is the striving of the saved. Because striving is the very verb, the answer, the action Jesus gives to this question. In verse 24, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. If you have another translation in the ESV of what we're looking at, it might say, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. And the word translated here, strive, is the word agonizomai. None of you need to know Greek to know what's behind that word. There's this idea of agony and of effort. And in verse 24, if you're looking at it right now, he makes a distinction there, doesn't he? He says, many will seek to enter and will not be able to, but you, agonizomai, to enter. You strive to enter. See, there's a difference between comfortably seeking to follow Jesus 
and making every effort, striving and agonizing for salvation in Jesus Christ. Since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, there's been a reality at play that you feel in your heart every day. And that is this, that our hearts do not naturally gravitate to make every effort. If you ever had kids and you've asked them to clean their room, you know that full well. Instead, our hearts naturally gravitate towards, if it's easy and if it's expedient, I'll do it. But Jesus warns against this temptation in Matthew 13, where he says this, he says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. Easy is the marketing slogan of our generation. But when you think of your call to follow Jesus, which verb describes it more? When you think of your life of following him, do you think of seeking or striving? Apathy or agony? Every effort or ease? And if this paradigm seems uncomfortable to you, because agony is uncomfortable, striving is uncomfortable, working out is uncomfortable, making every effort is straining. If that seems uncomfortable to you, then consider the very parable Jesus gives here. He says that the energy and discomfort of following Jesus is going to give way to the joy of eternal salvation. But the ease of following the world is going to give way to an agony in hell, which you cannot fathom. And if that's, you know, distressing to your soul, all we have to do is consider what it provokes about our own hypocrisy in life. Just before this, Jesus said to the Pharisees, when they were incensed that Jesus healed this woman on the Sabbath, he said, don't you untie an ox and bring them to water on the Sabbath? And here I have unbound this woman from a disease and you're upset. You might say, Jesus, I'm not gonna strive for this. But don't you have things in your life you strive for daily? Don't you have things that you know when this comes out, you're going to pay money for it? You're gonna find a way to make it work in the budget? You're going to find time in your schedule. You're going to find capital to do it. You know what striving is. If this provokes you, it's actually provoking to the degree that you just don't see Jesus as worthy as this striving, which is exactly why we need this text today. The Bible says it's appointed for man to die once and then judgment. And in this parable, Jesus is going to give us five motivations as to why you need to strive to beware of the idol of ease and to make every effort to find your salvation in Jesus Christ. And so the first we see in this parable is Jesus talks about the danger of time. The danger of time. Strive because we have the danger of time. The speed of time has not changed for any of us since we were born. We know it. And yet how many times are you like, a year has passed already? It's already time to pick up my kids from school? It's not yet lunchtime. We're always surprised at the passing of time, whether it's slow or whether it's fast. But how much more ought we to realize that there is a time when Jesus is coming back? And Paul says that he will come back like a thief in the night. We are surprised at the ordinary passing of time. We will all be surprised, even those who are waiting when Jesus comes back. You see, this parable begins in verse 25 when Jesus opens with a simple time marker. He says, when? 
when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. Our lives and our striving are always shaped by our whens. You see, for many of you, the past years of your life have been shaped by what was conferred upon you yesterday. Eating ramen, keeping long hours, striving made sense for when you got your diploma, for when you graduated. For others, we live in anticipation or expectation of when the baby comes, when I'm engaged, when the sickness goes away, when the pain stops, when the kids are out of the house. Our striving always makes sense in light of our whens. But how many of our lives are shaped by this when? It is not appointed for all of us to know every one of our life. There might never be when you find a spouse, when you have a child, when you pay off your debt, when you get the promotion. But this when is guaranteed for all of us. One day, there will be a day when Jesus comes back. And he speaks of the danger of neglecting this in verses 25 through 27 when he says this, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. You see, if you wait until when, once the master has shut the door, it's too late to begin anything of value. You see those words here? Look at the text, okay? We're just looking at the text. Twice, Jesus draws our attention to that word, begin. See, it's not necessarily bad to seek out Jesus. It's not necessarily bad to call your track record with Jesus into account. What's bad is when you begin to do it. In that day, you will begin to stand and knock. In that day, you will begin to say. But in that day, when that day comes, it is too late to begin what already should have begun. It's easy to assume that we know everything we need to know about tomorrow. But only God knows when this day comes. You can gamble. You can wait for that when to come later. You can strive for that when to come when it's convenient but that is a dangerous game to play because when that day comes, it's too late to begin. And when we stand, Jesus shows us of the second danger. That's the danger of assumption, the danger of assumption. Did you see when this day happened, what these these individuals did with Jesus? They, They boasted in their familiarity with him. They said, hey, Jesus, we're here. We know you. Do you remember us? We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. How dangerous is it for us? Us who are even in the church, us who are baptized members of the church to assume that because we knew Jesus by spending time in his presence, that we also know Jesus in a saving way. There's a difference between having an intellectual knowledge and a familiarity with Jesus than there is of having saving relationship with Jesus. To be part of a church is no certainty of salvation. To have come here today is no certainty of salvation. To know beautiful soaring truths of doctrine is no assurance of deliverance. It is only to know and to be known by Jesus before this moment. That is your only hope 
in life and death. When you, if you, when you come, please don't. If you were to come to my house in the middle of the night and knock on the door, there's a chance I won't answer it. Now, maybe for you, because assuming Jesus' parable here, I know you. But if a random individual knocked on my door in the middle of the night, why would I not answer it? Because I know my family and all my family is already in the house. Everyone who I love is known and accounted for. Therefore, you are only a threat. Salvation is for those who are joined to Jesus in this age, joined to his family by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? How do we get here? How do we know that we're not one who, who get there and we say, Jesus, we, we knew you. And Jesus says, I don't know you. That could be anxiety producing, can't it? Maybe you felt that. But consider how Paul speaks of salvation in the book of Galatians. Galatians 4.9, he says this. He says, but now that you have come to know God, speaking of salvation, but then how does he define that? Or rather, to be known by God. To know God is to be known by God. To be known by God in a saving way is to be known by God. And what does that look like? Well, 1 Corinthians 8.3, Paul says this. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. That's the solution. Love God right now. Strive for Jesus right now. Don't assume God knows you. Make yourself known to God today by giving your heart in faith through Jesus Christ and loving him. And when we love somebody, we know there is no end to our striving. How many of you strove today to make your mother know that you love her? It makes sense because of your love. And when you begin to love Jesus, we strive for him naturally because we know him and he knows us through faith. And we must strive to be known by God through loving faith in Jesus Christ because what's at stake is not an upset mom who didn't get a Mother's Day phone call. What's at stake is the damnation of sinners. The damnation of sinners. This is our third motivation to come to Jesus. And I want you to notice how Jesus, we saw how these individuals talked about Jesus. We ate and drank in your presence, you taught in our streets. But what did Jesus say about these individuals? In verse 27, did you see what he said? Depart from me, you workers of evil. Now, when we read the Bible, we have this dangerous disease of reading the Bible through the eyes of someone else. (laughs) And so I go, that makes sense for them. But remember what these people just talked about. One, they knew that when this last day came, they should probably go reconcile themselves with the master. We know that these are people who in life spent time in Jesus' presence. There are people who listened to Jesus. Matthew tells us that there were even people who attempted to live out the moral desires of Jesus. But what does Jesus call them at the end? Workers of evil. Jesus already made this abundantly clear in chapter 11 when he said, whoever is not with me is against me. There is no middle ground relationship in the game of life when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. And this is so important. I want you to hear this right now. The greatest problem you have is not what you have done, but what you have withheld. I'll say that again. The greatest problem you have in life is not what you have done, but what you have withheld. 
Brothers and sisters, the primary crime for which you will be punished in that final day is not rape, murder, abuse, or anything else against another human, but it is instead the abuse, the negligence, the violation, and the murder of God by our own unbelief. The greatest evil, the most damnable offense we could ever participate in is a rejection to believe and come to Jesus in faith. To not come to Jesus is to look at the creator who made you, the king who rules you, the groom who loves you, the lamb who was slain for you, the breath who sustains you, and to say, you are nothing compared to me. And it was in Ephesians 3 that Paul said it was in this gross misconduct that all of us once walked. All of us, he says, were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The just, right, and good response of those who have committed such crimes is to be forever barred from the house of the kingdom and sent away. Depart from me. You see, we often not not only have the problem of viewing sin too small, but we have the problem of viewing heaven too small. Heaven is so good. Redemption is so pure. Grace is entirely more amazing than we could thought or think that sin and evil cannot abide there. Not in a small part, not in a corner, not under a rug. It has no place there. The book of Revelation tells us of the new heavens and the new earth that what makes it so good is in part God's radiant, beautiful glory, but the other part that the evil and the unbelievers are kept out. Those sinners who profess faith in Jesus are welcomed into these gates of glory, but those who waited too long, those who refuse to give honor and worship to the only person worthy of it will be sent away to hell. This is the fourth motivation, the despair of hell. Look at how Jesus puts this in verses 28 through 30. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Jesus says, when that day comes, there will be a place, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some will be in beautiful feast of fellowship forever. But you, you who did not come when you should have, you will be in a different place. We do not naturally love the doctrine of hell. As your pastor, it is uncomfortable for me to talk to you about the doctrine of hell. And part of that is good because it is part of the the compassion innate to people made in the image of God that we should not out of hand desire people to perish. There's an aspect of mercy that each and every one, I don't care how theologically robust you are or how many Puritans you've read, hell should make you a little squeamish. Because even our God, who is impassable in his emotions, both desires to save and to damn, we should have that same tension in our own hearts. 
But part of this this dis-ease and part of why we wrestle with hell is because in a good way, we have in scripture far more information on the beauties of heaven than we do the pains of hell. As we'll talk about in a moment, there is much surpassing glory in heaven, but there is also unfathomable pain in hell. We cannot understand the scope of redemption if we do not understand from what we are redeemed. We cannot even ask as this one does. It begs the question to say, well, those who are saved be few if we do not believe there's something to be saved from. Which is why the doctrine of hell is not just important for us to know, but for us to feel. And as awkward as it is for us, truth does not need your affirmation to be true. But we stand behind scripture as a shield against our own heart, against a world that hates this doctrine. And we say, but if it's true, we reconcile with it. We do not reconcile it with us. And consider how Jesus has spoken of hell just in the book of Luke. Already, he has spoken of hell as a real place of constant hunger. Luke 6, 25. Of Eternal condemnation, Luke eleven thirty one, of beatings and punishment, Luke thirteen forty six, of eternal imprisonment, Luke twelve fifty nine, and here of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Mark nine, Jesus speaks of hell, and he says it is a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There is such a great irony to be a culture so incredibly driven to eliminate discomfort in life and yet be so unaware of the eternal and unending torments in hell. Our world exists to minimize suffering, but your life is a vapor compared to eternity. This is the suffering that God has set to redeem and relieve in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must be balanced. When the scriptures talk of heaven, we ought not just to speak of it, but we ought to call others to experience the beauty of it in our language and in metaphors to match its tone. But let us not also forget balance in the area of judgment should be similarly handled. To realize this is no fairy tale punishment. This is the eternal displeasure of God and the presence of all we loathe in life. Our world speaks of hell like a party with your fellow roughnecks in a dimly lit room with bad AC. But hell's a place of eternal torment. A place where the worm which eats your rotting flesh will never die because you will never be done dying. It is a place where the fire burns eternally, but never sears the nerve. It is a place where the pain of grinding your teeth and tears are never exhausted, for relief is never given. And more than that, it is not only a place where there is the active presence of punishment, but you live within eyeshot of everything you would have otherwise enjoyed. Jesus is Lord even in hell, and you will see all of his beauty on that day and know that it is not for you. 
It will sit in an experience that you cannot fathom until it's there. And Lord, have mercy that you don't have to experience that. It is a place we'll be eternally acquainted with punishment that meets our crimes perfectly, flawlessly in a proper execution of judgment. There are some who fly to Jesus primarily because of his surpassing beauty, but it is just as good of a starting place to fly to Jesus because of the agony of hell. And a mature Christian is motivated by both. The author Dante tried with all of his artistic muscle to describe hell in his book, Inferno. And speaking of even of the lightest experience in hell, he says this saying, here sighs and cries and wails, coiled and recoiled on starless air, spilling my soul of tears. Jonathan Edwards once preached a famous sermon, sitting in the weight of Jesus's words here, saying this, he says, your wickedness makes you as heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. If ideas like this do not cause you to strive for the narrow door, then only one thing remains. You don't believe it. If we believe it, we strive. And it might seem out of place, but I think in our culture today, In our age of moral outrage, we have never been more affirming of the doctrine of hell at a cultural level. We want to banish the intellectual criminals. We want to cancel to death anyone who breaches the party line. We want to bury those who disagree with us and never let them have a voice in public again. But unlike our world, which understands justice in punishment, the gospel also offers the promise of grace. And this is our final motivation the delight of heaven. At that one moment where some are cast out, there will be others who have come through the narrow gate. Here Jesus answers the question of, will they be few? Is this an endangered kingdom? And look at how Jesus speaks of it. For those in the kingdom are not only the fourfold representative of the Jewish hope, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and of the prophets, but also the many who come from the corners of the earth, from the east and the west and the north and the south. This was a biting critique, a gut blow for the unbelieving Jews of that day. Because Jesus is saying, in that day, you pious, unbelieving, self-righteous Jews, what you gaze at in heaven is all of your forefathers that you boasted to follow, who hoped in the Messiah that you yourself rejected. But more than that, you will look and you will see those dirty Gentiles. You will see people like me and people like you gathered by no merit of their own, by no royal birthright, but merely by the promise of salvation in another. And they will come to this feast and they will sit forever satisfied by the mercy of Jesus Christ. 
You see, the hope of heaven is that we can really say in the difficulties of life, when our striving feels just like striving, that we can say, it won't be like this forever. That one day the feast comes. That one day the striving ceases. For many, the final when will strike gut-wrenching terror into your hearts. But for believers, for those who in this life strive for Jesus with an exclusive commitment, the final when is the doorway into joy, unity, peace, and glory with the multitudes of believers from every tongue, tribe, and nation and the immediate joy of our triune God. Those are the doors. So who can come to the narrow door? Who can find it? All who come to the narrow door. You see, this passage is meant to cause, and I hope you feel it, it's meant to cause a moment of anxiety for a hopeful life of eternal peace. Do you fear being one who comes too late? Do you fear being one who's turned away by Jesus? Do you struggle to assess your life and make the delineation between seeking and striving, ease or every effort, agony or affability, then come. Come now. Don't delay. Remember how Jesus says, he says, I don't know where you're from. This isn't because Jesus doesn't know. He's God. He knows where you come from. He's not surprised when you say, hey, I came from that sketchy part of town. He knows exactly where you're from. The point he's speaking is he's speaking so that we can understand it as humans. The problem is not that Jesus doesn't know from where you come from. The problem is these people didn't know where they came from. Because if they knew where they were coming from, they would have striven. They would have went A man with cancer knows from where he comes when he seeks out a doctor. A refugee from a war-torn country knows from where he comes when he seeks asylum. So when we approach the gates of the kingdom today, let your place be known. Say, I come, and I come from the place of repentance. I've come from the cords of sin and the dust of damnation. I've come from the the wrath of God. I come as a sinner. I come as a rebel. I come burdened with guilt, but I come covered in the blood. I come in the blood of Jesus, knowing the scandal of the place of sin is met by the certainty of the promise of grace. (laughs) Sorry, I'm making kids cry. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) But for those who come, What will meet us on that day is not a shameful word of disgrace, but instead, I've been waiting. Enter into the joy of your maker. The door is narrow, but the pockets of grace are deep. Charles Spurgeon once said, the door is so narrow that you have to stoop with repentance to get in. He goes on to say, it's narrow enough for someone dwarfed with the smallest grasp of grace to find room. But narrow enough that none who attempts to carry the luggage of self-righteousness can enter. In just a moment, Jesus is going to quote from Psalm 118. But I want to focus on another verse from that psalm that I'm sure Jesus had ringing in his mind in this context. He's thinking of Psalm 118. It's what he closes with in verse 35. But look at this, Psalm 118, verses 19 through 23. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them 
and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the gate of the Lord. The answer of all who want guidance to the narrow way in Jesus. Strive to enter it. No one comes but through this door. And narrow as it is, small as it might seem, it is broad enough for any who come to see. And Jesus has come so that he can be seen. Jesus has come to reveal that the door is narrow, but the door is there nonetheless. He has come so that we on the path of repentance might know to whom we can flee. And this is where he goes in the following verses, verses 31 through 35. At the very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. For many of us, the idea of a narrow door seems innately exclusive and unreasonable. But it's only that until we see what our Savior himself has done to reveal himself as that door. Here Jesus, threatened by the Jewish ruler Herod who wants to kill him, he says this, he says, I've got work to do. Oppose me all you want, but I'm striving for this work. And he said, I've got healings to do today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll finish my course. Doesn't that have a whiff of prophecy to it? Jesus is committed to moving into Jerusalem, even at great cost to himself. Why? Because he understands his work and he is striving headlong into it. If we were the eternal son of God in the flesh, if we were the secret undercover boss that everyone should be respecting, but instead everyone is rejecting and hating, wouldn't we encounter this initial bit of opposition and throw up our hands and say, it's not worth it, let him burn. Right, that's what James and John already did in the book of Luke. They saw some Gentiles not listening and they're like, bring down the hellfire, Jesus. And Jesus had every right to do that. What stood forward in Jerusalem was not the promise of judgment. That already existed. What stood forward in the promise of Jerusalem was the possibility of salvation. And that's why he's moving here. But did you notice what Jesus admitted when he identified himself with the prophet in verse 33? He says, it's not right that I should perish apart from Jerusalem. Jesus knew the agony that awaited him. He knew that the cross was before him, but he was willing to strive into the town where he wasn't wanted in order to accomplish the gospel that we all needed. As Martin Luther says in A Mighty Fortress, were not the right man on our side, our striving would be losing.
Your striving, your work, your righteousness, your church attendance means nothing if Jesus doesn't go into Jerusalem first. And here we see the heart of Jesus contrasted with the heart of unbelievers. Jesus knows his cross will bring salvation and judgment, but his response to that judgment in this text is what? Did you notice it? It's lament. It's a song of sorrow. His heart, he would, his will, the desire of his soul is that he would gather them as a mother hen gathers her chicks. There's your tie into Mother's Day, okay? Jesus wants to be the mother hen gathering his chicks in. And, and that there is something beautifully innate to that. Mothers, you have a, a taste of the gospel in your nurturing heart. Even if God has withheld children from you and you have that desire, that is the desire Jesus has to save. But what's the problem here? The problem of unbelief. Because despite Jesus' desire, what does he say he encountered? But you were not willing. This is absolutely wild. Here we see one of the most important theological paradigms we could have. This is the compatibility between God's total sovereignty. He is the Lord. He does whatever he pleases. And human responsibility. Jesus desires for this to happen, but let's not forget verse 27. It is the master who is representative of Jesus in the book of Luke. It is the master who sends the sinner away. In verse 28, it is God who casts the sinner out into hell. This is true. God damns and he is not ashamed or squeamish to do it. But we see another layer here, don't we? That sinners also damn themselves. Everyone who rejects God does so and earns hell because of their own unwillingness because they want to. You see, to reject the gospel of Jesus is to enter the problem of a personal problem of hell. Hell is not theoretical for any who reject it. Hell is not theoretical for anyone, but it becomes personal when you realize that it's often a problem of your own choosing. You see, hell isn't God's problem that we need to fix. Hell is our problem that only God can fix. And C.S. Lewis describes this willingness, this wrong-placed willingness that leads to rejection of salvation and and a kind of self-choosing of hell this way. He says, there is always something that they, that is those who reject God, always something that they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There is always something they prefer to joy. We all strive. We strive for perfect families, for fulfilling jobs and satisfying vacations. But unless we heed Jesus' warning, our striving might be for a joy that cannot save. Hell is universally part of our own choosing, but heaven is part of God's own choosing. Jesus says that he has come to go to the cross for those who will finally say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord fruitless, faithless, and joyless will your life be until you see that same thing. Now you might say, well, if Jesus must save us from hell, but if Jesus is also the one who gives us eyes to see, then not everyone can see Jesus to be saved, but Jesus is still calling everyone to be saved. How will we know who will be saved? How will we know if I am saved? And in fact, we return to the very same question we opened with. Will those who are saved be few? Brothers and sisters, you are not the Lord. You do not understand the inner workings of God's sovereignty and your responsibility. But guess what? Jesus doesn't ask you to know. What does he do? 
in the face of such a question? Look at the text, it's right there. Strive to enter through the narrow door. You today, it means nothing to be concerned about the salvation of another if you are not concerned about your own salvation. See him today. See that this Jesus calls us to strive for him only because he has already strived for us on this road to the cross. He has given his life in that unbelieving town, Jerusalem, so that we might see and be woken from our slumber and come, come now, come today. Make striving our business and our savior our delight. We who come, we always come on the path of the cross. Knowing from where we come is the most defining thing we can say and the most defining place we'll ever be. May our lives show it. May our lives be striving. May our anthem be today. And when the master returns, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you give us eyes to see and to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, may you give us a sense, not only of the beauty of a king who accepted punishment on behalf of his church, but instead, Lord, make us fearful and honest in our understanding of what would have been ours apart from Jesus. May that motivate